Welcome to the Riverside Project podcast. We are mobilizing Houston to empower families and transform generations. We hope these conversations will give you a greater understanding of the issues facing our community and inspire you to find your place along the river. Today we have Chandler James. He is our Director of Church Mobilization here at the Riverside Project. Um, Chandler has worked in um, a number of local churches as both a student pastor and a next-gen pastor. Um, he also has some experience prior to working with us at, at the Riverside Project with another um, nonprofit in the foster care space. He and his wife, Caitlin, are also um, licensed foster parents of a few teenagers. Um, so we're really grateful to have you, Chandler. Thank you for being on the podcast with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Excited to, to chat and be part of the conversation. Yeah. Um, well, start off by telling us uh, a little bit. I know who you are, yeah. but can you share a little bit about who you are and how we got to this conversation? Yeah. These intro questions are always the hardest ones. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I'm a foster parent, um, like you already mentioned. Um, so I've been a foster parent now in January will be uh, three years. So my wife and I started um, becoming foster parents in started the training process kind of mid uh, kind of COVID season. So we've been foster parents for almost three years. Um, we are specifically currently foster parents of teenagers um, in our home. So we're doing, you know, that crazy thing, teaching kids how to drive and all of those fun all things. All the fun things that you never thought you would be doing at this age. Yeah, I didn't know how many that I was gonna have to put three teenagers in a car on a highway. So, <laughs> um, so teaching them how to drive, those kinds of things. Um, yeah, I previously, before kind of stepping into this space, um, was working uh, in next-gen spaces, so uh, I kind of have a pastoral type of background. Um, my wife is a nurse. Um, yeah, I love the next generation. That's kind of been, always been my passion, and so yeah. this is kind of a different space, which I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about uh, in terms of, uh, yeah, invest, investing into the next generation. Um, but for fun at home, we have a dog. We just got a new kitten. Um, we have all kinds of animals. We have one uh, chicken in our backyard, and then we have uh, a lizard. And so lots of things happening in our home, kids, animals, all just the things. Just living the dream. Yeah. Absolutely. So. Well, share share with me too, just a little bit about um, how you got into the foster care space. I remember four years ago, I think, yeah. I got an email from you through our website, and that's when we officially connected, um, but your church was getting involved. And yeah. I think that story is really powerful because, of course, now you work with just churches. Um, but share a little bit about how all of that shift started to happen. Yeah. So, yeah, it's crazy. That was four years ago um, when we first sat down. But uh, yeah, so as we already said, prior to that, uh, working here at the Riverside Project, I was working for two different churches in Houston. One was kind of a large multi-site church on the south side of Houston. Uh, I was there for probably about four and a half, close to five years, um, kind of wearing different hats um, at that church. Then left that church and went to a church, uh, kind of more medium-sized church on the north side of Houston. Um, don't have family there, but kind of just flip sides of Houston. Um, when we got there, it was 2019. Um, and when I got there, kind of one of my like, I guess assignments, if you would, or kind of one of the ministry um, kind of projects, I guess, um, was, hey, there's this residential treatment center, essentially kind of a group home um, yeah. of eight to 10 junior high, high school boys that were living there. And it was about 20 yards um, from our church property. Our staff actually before in I your had, front yard, essentially. Yeah, basically in our front yard. So if you like walk outside of the church, like auditorium doors, it's like, boom, there, like literally yeah. like 20, 30 yards. You could actually, I know it's a figure of speech, but like actually throw a rock and hit it. Yeah. Um, and so when I got there, it was a home, um, eight to 10 junior high, high school boys. Prior to it being a home like that, our staff actually, before I had gotten on staff there, 
used to office out of this building. So it's a building and it's property that's kind of been there. It's a rental property. Um, but yeah, when I got there, there's eight to 10 junior high, high school boys, um, that would kind of every Thursday, you know, come over to the church property and they would play basketball. Um, and so long story short, like I, at the time, didn't know very much about child welfare. I didn't know very much about foster care in general. I wasn't a foster parent at the time. Um, so I was pretty clueless on, Hey, like, where do we start serving these kids? And at the time I hadn't fully moved to the North side of Houston yet. So every day I was driving like an hour and 20 minutes kind of to get to work from South Houston still. And we had a Thursday night service. And so it didn't make sense to traverse the Houston traffic, go back and then come back for Thursday night service. But every Thursday night, these kids would come play basketball. And it kind of hit me of like, hey, I'm already here. Yeah. Um, and so kind of our foster care ministry at the time in that church at that church and really was the catalyst to me kind of stepping into the space more um, was to say, I know nothing about child welfare. I don't know anything yeah. about uh, kids in foster care, really. Um, and so I was like, hey, but I am really, really good at beating junior high kids in basketball. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I can do that. And so in my head, there was like, hey, there's so many different things that I don't know and that I can't do. Um, but for, for, for us, it was like, Hey, I can beat kids in basketball. So I wore my church clothes and I went out there and I beat kids in basketball. And then it kind of, kind of started, um, you know, kind of moving forward from there where we had other people at the church who said, Hey, I can, you know, it's 40, 50 year old guys that are like, Hey, I can also beat kids in basketball. And so they started joining and that's kind of where, where we started, Mm -hmm. um, if you would, is just kind of serving on those kids and that staff. And it didn't start with them attending our church, though that was kind of what it ended up looking like um, in part. Um, But it just looked like kind of playing basketball. And so that kind of was my initial kind of exposure, if you would, um, kind of to the space. But What did you learn through that process? You mentioned that coming into that scenario, you didn't have any any understanding of what foster care was. And then what was that progression like of just learning a little bit? And at the beginning, it was just building relationships and doing what you can do. But over time, did that evolve? How did that evolve? And then what did you learn in that process? What did the church learn? Yeah, it's it's so funny. I mean, and to be fair, I, I grew up with uh, a little brother who was, we adopted him out of foster care when he was 10. But even even that and even some exposure, like my grandfather aged out of the foster care system. And so you can be like somewhat in the know and in proximity and have some personal experience. But at the same time, man, really, when I got to this church, I really was clueless. Mm -hmm. I didn't know all the acronyms. I didn't know. There are many. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't know all the things. Um, And so for us, it's funny. Like people always ask like, Hey, how did you start a foster care ministry there? And like, it sounds like an oversimplified answer, but I think it was like, Hey, there are like vulnerable kids literally right in front of us we're aware of that and it was like hey what are we going to do about that um and at the time it it really didn't look like starting a new ministry it wasn't a tab on the website it was like literally like hey let's just love on these kids and what does that look like um and i remember their workers would come and they would like you know watch the kids make sure they were doing what they were supposed to and all these things and it literally looked like hey when i wasn't playing basketball with kids i would talk to the worker and say hey tell me your story like what are you yeah why do you work here? Like, what does that look like? What does your history look like? And so, so much of like our initial steps was, I think like, hey, tell me your story and I just want to know you. I don't want anything from you. I just want to know you. So Yeah, just building relationships. Yeah. Just getting to know them, seeing them, appreciating them and just, yeah, relationships. So what happened after that? You moved eventually away from church ministry and actually stepping into, you know, from being clueless about the foster care system to actually working in that space full time. How did that happen? And what made you make that big shift? 
Yeah, for sure. And it's hard to kind of pick where to start on this, but for, for some context. So when I got to the church in 2019, we served that basically that, that group home and those, those boys and those, um, those workers for probably about, I don't know, like eight to 10 months. And we kind of got to this point where we really, we didn't know what else to do. We were doing the meals. We were loving on the kids that came over to the property and played basketball. We would invite them to church. We would, you know, do Christmas drives or gifts for the kids, um, you know, on our angel tree, like all the things like from the outside looking in, Hey, we, we were doing the things, but we kind of got to a point where it kind of came to a head about 10 months in where it was like, Hey, I don't feel like we know what the next steps are, mm-hmm. um, in terms of developing this and just rallying our church around this idea, um, of foster care and all of these things. And so I think that's when I originally reached out to you was mm-hmm. like, Hey, I feel like we're at a head here and I don't know what that next step is. Um, and so it was really helpful to just, yeah, really think through, Hey, what does it look like to build teams and structure and strategy around this? Um, yeah, child welfare and foster care ministry. And then you were able to even like connect us to different organizations, uh, in the city that were key partners, um, for our church at the time. And all that to say that kind of propelled my wife and I, I think we always wanted to be foster parents, didn't know what that would look like. Um, but working with the group home was like, oh, it's right here. Um, and just getting to know, yeah, just what the need is in our community that really propelled us forward. And so we started, um, the licensing process of becoming foster parents. And so then we did that. Um, like for a year, it took us about a year to get licensed. My wife's a nurse. It took just a long time. So we went through the licensing process. We became foster parents. We got our first placement at the time. Uh, she was two and a half years old. She was with us for about 18 months before she reunified with her mom. Um, and somewhere in between there, we got, we took on a, a teenager and then we took on the teenager siblings and things like that. Um, so that's kind of the world that we, we live in now. Um, all that while I was a student pastor on the north side of Houston at this church. Um, but I think there was a specific moment that I remember. I was actually thinking about this a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and I don't know if I've shared, shared this with you before, but there was this moment where we were doing an exercise as a staff and it sounds kind of silly, but the pastor had handed out like actual like napkins to all the staff. And the idea was, Hey, draw your dream on a napkin. And that's where it starts. Um, and I was like, okay. And like, as a staff member, I was like, I don't, I don't know what this is, but I did it. And so I started drawing like, Hey, the dream of like the type of leader that I want to be, the type of parent that I want to be, the type of Christian that I want to be. And so I started drawing this out and I drew like, I, I wish I had it with me, but basically like just a church. And I wrote out to the side of saying like, creating safe spaces for the next generation like that's my goal that's what i want to do yeah um and then i thought more on it and it was like this whole like 30 minute exercise he was asking us questions things like that um then i kind of branched out and i was like actually this is like maybe the starting point for creating safe spaces but really what i want to do is i want to create safe spaces in homes and i want to teach our people who have found this to be a safe space to then go and make safe spaces for the next generation really to become more like jesus And so then that started this whole process really for this next year of like, hey, what does it mean to really um, create those safe spaces for the next generation to be more like Jesus? Um, And I realized I'm doing that in my home. I'm doing that in the church. Mm -hmm. um, And I want to help other churches and other homes do that for kids and families. Yeah. Um, And so really that was like, if I could like define it to like a pivotal moment where it was like a shift for me was looking at what felt like a silly exercise in a napkin at the time and hanging it over my desk for about a year 
and having this, I don't know what that looks like in the future. Or I don't know if that's attached to a church. And we just kept yeah. building safe spaces in our home and in the church and hoping that that would turn into something later. So yeah. I don't know if that answers your question. But. Yeah, it does. I think sometimes it takes just sitting still for a second and really thinking about that. Because I mean, I know for me, we just kind of keep going day after day after day and doing the thing that's in front of us. And sometimes it's like sitting down in that space and saying, what is it that the Lord has called me to do? Mm-hmm. What is it that I am passionate about? Um, for me, you know, I went to a conference in 2017, um, really looking to figure out how do I, it was a foster care conference. I went with another foster adoptive parent and went thinking, I want to figure out how to engage my church in this. That was kind of my key, what I was passionate about. And I went and then I saw this collaborative organization that was doing this work and came back with this bigger dream that I never anticipated. And it's kind of similar to your story in that you're not looking to find this other road to take. It just kind of happens. And then the way that God multiplies that over time, it's just, I don't know. I, yeah. You can't plan that stuff. It just happens. And then yeah. I think it's just the willingness and the obedience to just lay it out there and say, do with this what you want. Yeah. And it just, it's scary to think about. I know Jason Johnson, one of our friends, talks a lot about like if we knew the whole picture at the beginning, right. we would never imagine where we would end up. Yeah. But it or is, maybe we wouldn't have done it. Or yeah. Because or maybe I'd have been like, that sounds hard. That sounds with scary. The, the, the difficult and it comes with yeah. the beautiful. And yeah, I'm glad that we yeah. don't know all those things. Yeah, front. it was it was really cool. One of the um, one of our kids' siblings who's been living with us um, really since July, early August of this year. So maybe three or four months at this point. Um, she aged out of foster care uh, a little over a year ago. We've kind of been supporting her. She calls us like her godparents. All these things. She's hilarious. But her and I were driving in the car. We still live on the north side of Houston at that church that I were near that church where I used to work, and we don't drive by it as much anymore because um, we just we do things on the other side of town. Um, But her and I were uh, in the car together and we passed the church on the north side of Houston uh, that I used to work at. And I like pointed to her because I have at this point known her for two years now. And I said, hey, that's the church that I used to work at. Um, And she said, oh, really? I didn't know what she first said. Oh, that little building? (laughs) Which I was like, there's a building behind that one, but yes. Uh, So she said, like, that's where you used to work? And I said, yeah, I used to work there. I said, you know, it's kind of funny. I would never know you if I never like left one church and started working here um, because I would have never worked with teenagers in that way. And she was like, what? Like, that's crazy. Um, But it was just a cool like moment for both of us there in the car to just kind of pause and say, hey, like look at where kind of life has brought us and where God has kind of, you know, put these pieces together. And it's been like one hard choice and step at times Mm -hmm. um, kind of kind of compounding together that ultimately leads us to like, hey, we care for teenagers and we're work. We work in this space. We, yeah are doing this at our homes, all these things. So that's a big picture. It's a great picture of the river. I think it's, it's not comfortable um, to get into the water to help someone out or family out. Um, It's not necessarily heroic on the day to day. I would say that it is, there's heroes all over our city doing really incredible work, but it's also messy and it's uncomfortable and it does not come without a fight. Um, And we see that over and over and over again. Um, It's so, so worth it. And I think you would agree. It's so, so worth it, even on days when it's really, really hard because you are pushing back the darkness. You're ushering in light into the dark spaces. And that's, it's brutal sometimes. Um, Why do you keep doing it? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm hearing you talk and I'm like, yeah, it is really hard. Uh, Yeah, 
I, I feel like people ask me all the time, hey, um, you know, my wife and I are 30. We started being foster parents at, I think, 27. Um, don't have biological kids of our own, have never, have never even tried. Um, and people always ask us. That's like the infamous question that I feel like mm -hmm. people ask us is, hey, why do you do it? And then the second follow-up question is, hey, why do you keep doing it? Especially mm -hmm. if they know um, the reality that my wife and I live in and that our kids live in. All the um, pets what, that you have All now. the pets we have, the, chick <laughs> the reality that the chicken lives in. Um, but yeah, people always ask us like, hey, why do you do it and why do you keep doing it? And I think the reality is, is honestly, without going into all the details, we had a, a really difficult situation maybe a month ago that I think maybe will answer your question really well. Um, and I remember, um, oh, well, really, it was, one of our kids was in an accident. Um, and so she was in the hospital, she like broke her tibia. Um, and so she was having to have surgery. And I remember walking out from that moment. It was kind of like a traumatic moment, like kind of crazy accident. Yeah, just things that you don't expect as a parent, right? And you never want that phone call. Um, and I remember walking out of the hospital the first day and saying like, man, I just don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> I was yeah. like, I want to quit, like it's hard. Um, and then from one end of the hallway to the other end of the hallway, like I remember, like I like literally thought as like, but sh she doesn't get to choose that. Mm -hmm. Like I get to choose like whether I want to keep doing this um, or not, but like she doesn't get that privilege. And so it was like a huge moment for me of like, so I don't know if I answered your question. Like, hey, why do we keep doing it? Is because they don't get that choice. Um, yeah. And as long, we've always said, um, like as long as we have, you know, the capacity to give, we have a room um, and like we have the resources able to support, then like our answer is yes to that. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if that's the uncertainty, question, you know, yeah. it's, it's, and it's the question that we get a lot for people who are considering foster care. And we talk about, you know, reframing fears and we talk about, you know, you don't have enough to do this. Um, you, you don't, um, you don't, they don't, I don't, yeah. um, but we keep showing up because, they the kids need it and yeah. families need it and yeah. our city doesn't change without people being willing to yeah. show up and i tell people all the time like it's not i mean i think foster parents get the heroism type of award and the kids often don't um but i tell people all the time and i, I don't know if it's that we're younger and we have teens and so maybe we, we, we see it a little bit differently I, I don't know but i tell people all the time that hey i wish it was just me doing this and i wish i could accept all of that praise but the reality is is our home's doing this together. Like it is our yeah. teenagers like traversing like really like difficult life seasons together. Um, mm -hmm. And so it's not just us doing it, um, but it's us doing it together. And so. that willingness, I think, to be vulnerable. Like it's yeah. not an easy road that they have walked. And the the fact that they keep showing up is something that we don't always think about. Like you said, we think about right. the foster parent that keeps stepping in and we praise them for that. But yeah. yeah, absolutely. I've never really thought about it that way. But the kids keep showing up too, yeah. even in their trauma and even yeah. in their struggles. Um, that's something to really be excited about. Yeah, for sure. What have you learned as a foster parent? I mean, we talked some of that it just came out, but what yeah. other things, are there anything specific that you've learned through that journey um, of just becoming a foster parent and continuing to walk that road? Yeah, hmm. that's a really good question. I think um, the first thing that jumps to mind is uh, we've learned how to just receive um, during times that have been really challenging. Um, that's been that's been a huge one. Like I feel like our at least immediate life. So like yeah. when I think about it, like maybe the last like four years um, has been saturated with opening our home in different capacities. Even for people who like before we stepped on the foster care space, was opening our home, was sharing resources, um, was yeah, just investing into other people, primarily the next generation. But 
Um, yeah, I think in the last like year plus, like what I've really learned as a foster parent is like, hey, you also need to receive. So when that company calls you and offers you like a free house cleaning, like just say yes to it, even though your house is a mess. When that organization or that friend says, hey, can we do something? The answer is yes. Um, and we've just learned, I think, to say yes. Um, as much as we say yes to other people uh, or really kids yeah. in our home, we've learned to, I think, say yes to the people who are trying to help us. Um, There's a shift so. that happens there, I think, because we a lot of times don't want to accept help and we just yeah. kind of, we want to do it on our own. But that gives them a space to serve in this capacity yeah, too. For sure. um, it's something that we don't always think about that their place along the river is bringing me a meal. And if I say no to that, it doesn't give them the opportunity to step into this space in the way that, um, that they really love to. Um, so yeah, absolutely. Um, so tell us a little bit, I see the work that you do every day. Um, our team sees the work that you do every day doing church mobilization work. Um, you started working within one specific church that was where you were working and now, um, you have, created spaces for safety and things like that um, all over the city. And you're working with a team here. It's crazy to think how much it's grown, (laughs) even just in the last like three months. um, Church is coming to us now saying, hey, we just, we want to know what to do. We want to be along the river. We want to find our place. Um, Show us how to do that. Give us tools and resources. Can you share a little bit about what your day-to-day looks like and how we how we work with churches in that space? Yeah, for sure. Um, no, that's a good question. I, I mean, our team, I think in a general sense, right, we say that, hey, we kind of exist to connect, equip, uh, and mobilize churches to care for vulnerable kids and families within their churches, but also within mm-hmm. their communities. Um, and so a large part of like kind of what our team has really sought out to do. And I mean, I mean, really you, Jason, like had laid the framework long before I got here. Right. And was doing it even with like a very imperfectly, like yeah. <laughs> but figuring but, it out as we went. Yeah. But I think the, the whole idea here is to say, Hey, how can we actually come alongside the church? I think a recognizing, Hey, the church is already doing work, right? Uh, you did not put a, a home of eight to 10 junior high boys. Uh, junior high and high school boys in front of our church. It was already there. The work was already there. It was in front of us. And there were people engaged in it in some Mm -hmm. capacity. Um, But sometimes the work is there. There are the people who are doing the work. Um, but maybe the the resourcing, there aren't very many organizations who are saying, hey, we're actually going to resource the church to propel the work that you're already doing mm-hmm. forward. Um, so I, I like to tell churches all the time, we work with um, like over 140 different churches um, across Houston. So think from like Galveston to Montgomery, and that can be a church that says, hey, we know this is important. We have no place where to start. And so we say, hey, um, you know, let's talk about that. Let's look at the data right here in your part of the city and how what what is the actual need and what are how are you uniquely positioned as a church um, to kind of care for vulnerable kids yeah. and families in your community. And then we also work with a church that says, hey, I've been running this parents' night out for 10 years, but I feel like kind of when we were working with the group home where it's like, hey, I just feel like there's something else here, something more we could learn, something uh, yeah. uh, additional connections we could have. Um, and things like that. And so our our team, we're not direct service providers, right? But we get the opportunity to kind of facilitate connections, resources, um, and kind of help the church feel like, hey, we're supported mm-hmm. in the work that we're trying to do in our community. And so, um, yeah, that's kind of, I think, yeah. what we do, um, kind of propel the church forward in that. So 
And we always talk about how we're not we're not the organization where we go to the church to ask them for funds so we can go do the work. Right. I know there are some spaces where that has to happen in some nonprofits sure. and some social services area where the church really just can't step into those spaces. And so they gladly share their resources so that a nonprofit can take that up um, and move that forward. Right. We always say that's that's just not what we do. Yeah. Um, we believe that especially in the space because relationships are so key and that's what ultimately what the church can provide is just relationships, um, yeah. whether that's with a group home or doing a parent night out. And some of these families are in their churches. And so, we yeah. really, it doesn't make sense for us to just take that on. So, we've really had um, the strategy of how do we actually just equip the church to do that work of ministry. Right. Um, and I love that. It's a little bit more difficult because, yeah. as you know, there's lots of different types of churches. There's lots of different um, parts of the city that are vastly different. Um, but it it it's beautiful. Yeah. It's challenging. What have you been most surprised by as you've walked in this space um, and learned kind of what this process is and and how to work with churches? Yeah. What have you been? This most feels surprised like maybe by? a contradictory answer to that. <laughs> I I am I think a surprised. Um, I think in a positive sense of like how many churches are already doing this really well. Mm -hmm. One. Um, but then I'm also surprised as to how many churches are doing it really well. Um, but haven't like thought too much about, Hey, these families are actually, they're in our church. Right. Yeah. I think, yeah, I mean, even when I was on staff at churches, I think my natural, it's all about proximity, right? So the closer yeah. we are to a need or to a vulnerable kid or family, the more we realize um, that that need is in our backyard. Mm -hmm. um, but there was a moment cause, um, we, you know, here at Riverside Project have data down to the zip code. And there was a moment, I think when you showed me the data that existed in Cypress Hockley Tomball, and I was like, wow, like this is here, right? Like there, it's like a place that has um, many kids in foster care um, versus other parts of the city. And I think that was huge for our people to put up and our staff to say, oh, that's actually here because it's not uh, we don't see the need where we work, yeah. where we play, um, in our neighborhoods. We don't, we don't see it and we don't think about it. So if it's out of sight, out of mind, we're not yeah. even realizing it. So it started with saying, Hey, this is actually in our backyard. Um, but then it actually moves into this, this spot of like, Oh, this is actually in our, in our, under our roof. Mm -hmm. Like we actually do have the grandmother caring for the three kids that she took on, right? We actually have the kinship family. We actually yeah. have the biological um, parent that just had their kids removed and is going through a dark season and isn't saying anything, but they're in our yeah. pews, right? Um, mm -hmm. And we speak to them every week and they're in our small groups. And so, um, yeah, so I don't know if that answered your question, but I think that's kind of yeah. um, what has surprised me is A, how much the churches really wants to be in this space mm -hmm. and it wants to engage and many are doing really good work already. And then B is the like, hey, but I didn't know yeah. that it was actually the people right in front of me, right? Yeah, and the shift that happens there when their their eyes are kind of open to, oh, there are foster and adoptive families in our church. To some degree, some churches know that and some of them don't. Right. But remembering that there are vulnerable families, and we talk about that from the pulpit all the time, about the importance of family and the, the importance of um, God's family. Yeah. And yet we talk about it over and over, but we don't always realize that there are families who are vulnerable, kinship families, like you said, are relatives that have taken on family members and, and parenting kids that are not their biological kids. Right. It opens their eyes to this reality. And then the humility that we've seen of the church to step into that willingly and to say, we don't know what we don't know. Can you help us? Right. Um, I've been so encouraged by that. I, and I, I'm excited to see more of it. Yeah. Um, there's a huge, just a lot of humility there. Yeah, no, for sure.
Well, we're coming up on the last five minutes of our time. And so um, I've got five quick questions to to end our time. Great. Um, Can't wait. The last five in the last five. Um, Okay. What is one piece of advice um, that you would give to a foster parent who's just starting out? Just one. What's what's the main thing that you would say? One piece of advice. Um, I mean, I hate to echo like what I said earlier, but I think is to receive the help when it's offered. Yeah. You're not asking for two, but I'm going to give two. Okay. Um, and then I think it's to, yeah, I think have like built in support beforehand. And I say that with the caveat of it doesn't mean you have to before you start, yeah. but if it's available to you. So kind yeah. of along the same lines of receiving. Okay. Do that. Gotcha. Um, if it is an option. Okay. Number two, you became a parent really quickly. Mm-hmm. So you had a toddler, you had a, now you have teenagers, which is such a whirlwind. <laughs> what is one item that you've purchased or received that's been most helpful to you in Ooh. becoming a parent? We've done a lot of grief purchases in our home. So grief. The uh, kitten? Yeah, I call them grief purchases. <laughs> yes. The kitten actually, yes. Two weeks ago, that was uh, a valuable asset to our home. It's still there to be clear. <laughs> But yeah, we bought a kitten. Um, I would say like, honestly, like a really practical thing for us specifically with having teenagers is we have um, this like Alexa show. It's like, um, I don't know, it's about this big if you're on the podcast watching, but it's it's about that big. And we like mounted it on the wall. And so the kids can say, hey, Alexa, put in, uh, you know, add milk to the shopping list or add my cereal to the shopping list. So it's kind of nice. Like they can kind of add it to the shopping list and it's kind of given them the autonomy to ask for yeah. what they need um, without having to ask us directly. And so it's been kind of cool. That's been helpful. Yeah. Maybe we'll put that on our Christmas yeah. list. Although my five-year-old, there's no telling what will go into the shopping list. <laughs> yeah. Um, third question. Our tagline at Riverside Project is things that matter are hard. Mm-hmm. We have it um, on social media. We have it on a t-shirt now. Um, it's something that people have come to know us by a little bit. Yeah. Um, what does that statement, things that matter are hard mean to you? Um, they're not easy questions, yeah. by the way. No, I mean, I mean, I think for the most part, right. I think it's, it speaks for itself. Um, this doesn't answer your question. So I apologize, but you have to answer the question. I'm going I'm to answer it, but, but I think it is just a reminder. Like I have that written places. I have like the shirt. Um, I have it on my phone. Like, I think it is a reminder that, Hey, what I'm doing matters. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there are just days that I'm like, like literally I will speak out loud at times. Um, that, hey, I'm not sure that what I'm doing matters. Um, And so it really is just a reminder. Mm -hmm. Um, So pretty self-explanatory statement, but I think it has been helpful for me to have it on a sticky note or have it like just sitting places as a reminder of, hey, what I'm doing does matter. Yeah. Um, And as a side note, I think that's one of the benefits of the work that we do and that we get to do is that we get to instill that type of language into our community and our system um, to remind them that what they do matters. I remember I was wearing that shirt um, in the grocery store and I saw someone look at me as I was walking down an (laughs) aisle and she stopped me and said, I needed to hear that. Yeah. And she just kept walking. And I always wonder like, what was it for her? You know, what what was it for for her that she was being reminded that this hard thing that's happening in my life actually really does matter. So, um, okay. Number four, what is one thing that general, generally people are surprised to find out about you? Uh, I already said it, but I think that I'm 30 and have teenagers. (laughs) And I, I often say that I, um, they're trying to do their math in their head. Yeah, they're like, how does that work? Yeah, <laughs> I think people are generally like really surprised by that. So, um, okay. Yeah. Last question. What was the last thing that you Googled? That's a good question. Do I have time to like look it up? Sure. To actually tell you what I Googled. My phone is trying to update. 
Uh, the last thing that I Googled was, I'm going to give you the last two. Okay. Um, was FedEx near me. Okay. <laughs> and Very then, practical. Yeah. And then how many quarts of oil goes into a 2017 Tiguan? Okay. <laughs> there you go. All right. Well, thank you. Um, as we close out, I just, I really do want to say thank you to you um, for your willingness to step in to these spaces. Um, I feel like we just made a huge shift from something funny to just yeah. going for it. Um, but yeah, your willingness to step into the hard places, um, your willingness to step onto our team um, and lead our team um, has been just really encouraging to me and I know to the rest of our staff. And so um, don't be discouraged. Yeah, Keep thanks. going. Keep, uh, keep doing the work that you're doing. Yeah, appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me on the podcast. Yeah, glad you're here. Yeah. To those listening, we hope these conversations have inspired you to find your place along the river. And we welcome you to join us in bringing hope and renewal to the city of Houston. If you'd like more information on how to get involved, please visit riversideproject.org and submit a contact form. We'll see you next time.